We have one scripture reading this morning. It's taken from John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 8, verses 31 through um, 37. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of God. Our country was founded on the virtue of freedom. The, the fathers of our nature, nation stood for religious freedom, freedom of religion. They provided for freedom of speech. They believed in the, the right that we have to vote for our leaders. And yet, I don't know about you, but I feel, see that today that so many people feel trapped. Some even consider themselves imprisoned. You know, this year has resulted in a freedom controversy, the face mask, which most of you are wearing. Some demand the freedom to choose whether or not they wear a face mask. And others argue that those who are not wearing a face mask are taking away the freedom to be protected from the coronavirus. And I have to admit, I don't like face masks. I find them confining. They can be hot. I can't talk well with them on. They, they basically bug me. However, I see their purpose. If it means providing peace of mind, if it means affording some measure of disease protection, whether that's small or large, I don't know. If it means keeping our economy open, guess what? I'll wear a face mask gladly. It's no big deal. And I'm still free. Wearing a face mask doesn't take our freedom away. This morning, we've had numerous technology problems, from our main projector going out to the smaller system I brought to going out to Carolyn's mic popping every so often. And I have to tell you, as a guy that works with this, some these things, I felt trapped this morning. I felt imprisoned by the failure of technology. But we're still free. Technology can't take our freedom away. It's an election year. And as usual with election years, tensions are starting to run high. Republicans and Democrats want us to believe that voting for the wrong party will result in a loss of freedom. Many of us feel very strongly about our candidates, and that's a good thing. We should vote for what we believe. And it's also very good to be concerned about the outcome of an election, particularly a presidential election. 
But the truth is, no matter who wins in November, we can still be free. The government, the president, the Congress, they can't take away our freedom. But many do live without freedom. They're imprisoned. Not before, behind physical bars, but actually by something far worse. The cause of their imprisonment can't be blamed on our culture. It can't be blamed on a, a virus. It can't be blamed on our country's leadership. See, the worst form of imprisonment that we can face is the result of sin. Sin robs you and me of our freedom. We're imprisoned by our addictions. We're trapped in our greed. We can't seem to escape fear. We're stressed, we're worried, we're worn out, we're angry, we're disappointed, we're depressed, or maybe we're puffed up, lustful, covetous, blinded, arrogant, lazy, or maybe even foolish. Any one of those or any combination of those can imprison us. Sometimes we can be trapped and we don't even realize it. But you know what? Our friends, our family, and our coworkers, they see it. And often they'll try to help. And many times in these situations, we refuse their help. Still other times we see our prison walls and escape seems impossible. Freedom seems like a dream, a, a hopelessly impossible dream. But I'm here to tell you it's not. Freedom is possible. And experiencing tr true freedom begins with the question, kind of an odd question, but who's your daddy? Who is your daddy? See, the source of our imprisonment, our, our freedom, is dependent on our Father. And I'm not talking about our earthly dad, but I'm talking about the Father to whom you and I belong. If we're slaves to sin, if sin imprisons us, guess what? Our daddy's the devil. But on the other hand, if you belong to Jesus, your Father is God. Freedom is yours forever, and such freedom doesn't depend on your health. It doesn't depend on your wealth or where you live or the color of your skin or your social economic status, your political party, your age, your current circumstances, or anything else that this world might offer or try to take away. True freedom can never be taken away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing you are the only source of true freedom and it is your gift to us if we would receive it. And yet so often we don't accept your gift. Our prison walls, in a strange way, seem to be more comfortable, more familiar. We're trapped. We ask this morning that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. Teach us about freedom. Draw us close to your Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study of John's gospel. 
And over the, the past few weeks, if you've been with us, we have read of Jesus' bold but true claims. Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God. And as a result of that, opposition to Jesus was starting to build. And Jesus didn't just back down. He confronted the religious leaders. They wanted to discredit him. They wanted to kill him if necessary. Last week, Pastor David showed us that Jesus knew from where he had come, and he knew where he was going. And those truths set up yet a, another confrontation. But that confrontation appeared to have some positive results. At the end of our passage last week, after this confrontation took place in John 8.30, it says that as Jesus was speaking, many believed in him. And that sounds great. But did they really believe? Sadly, they didn't. Some people claim God as their daddy, as their, their father, but their words are hollow. It's bad news. It's horrible news. And yet it's true. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a true believer. Now, that being said, I want to let you know that all hope is not lost. As long as we're alive, we can turn to Christ. And Jesus will then show us what it means to be his disciples. In fact, in verse 31 of our reading, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. A couple things to note. First, Jesus spoke directly to the Jewish people. It shows that Jesus is personally interested in you. He's personally interested in me. He cares about you. You have his attention. And then second, Jesus was very clear about it, what it means to be his disciple, his follower. He said we are to abide in his word. Those who belong to Jesus abide in Jesus. And to abide means to remain or continue or, or to dwell. I like to say it this way, we're to soak in Jesus. In John 15, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Jesus spoke of you and me as the branches who abide in the, in the vine. Jesus is the vine. We stay connected to Jesus. He is our lifeblood. And we do that by reading his word in the Bible, by letting his teaching impact our hearts and allowing then the Holy Spirit to transform us. Belief leads to behavior. What we believe will show up eventually in how we behave. The Jews in our passage in John 8 didn't abide in Jesus' words. They rejected his words. They weren't believers after all. And that became apparent by the end of John chapter 8. Jesus lost some followers that day. The, the size of the crowd of people following him probably shrank. Jesus' offer of grace is available to all. And yet, Jesus wasn't trying to simply attract large crowds. He wanted true believers. He still does today. Many of you 
know and have heard this several times, but throughout my working career, I've been a chemist, I've been a salesperson, a sales manager, and a marketing sales support manager. And all those positions that I had rely on numbers. Chemistry involves a lot of math. Salespeople and their managers are interested in the, the sales numbers. They're interested in profit margins. And it's the same for support managers. And so years ago when I became a pastor, my numbers orientation, my attraction to numbers followed me. And I see somebody smiling through his mask because many of you have teased me about that on several occasions. And they tease me about things like, you know, typically I know exactly how many people are in each service every Sunday. Our connection class teachers and now our community group leaders, if they see me on a Monday or Tuesday or talk to me, they expect me to ask how many were in their class. And yet, I do know that numbers are not the ultimate measure of a church. They are important. They do matter, but they're not as important as some people, unfortunately like me, often think. And so do this. Take a numbers guy like me and throw him into a pandemic where for several months we couldn't even come into the church building for a worship service. There were no people to count. And now we are still limiting attendance. Add to that our desire that we want people to be very feel safe and comfortable when they do come to church. And it all adds up to, I think God is working again to change my heart. The pandemic has caused me to focus a little less on the numbers. Although i got to confess, some Sundays I still know many, how many of you are in the building, and then I can check Facebook and see how many of you watched online. God is showing me for about the hundredth time that discipleship is a whole lot more important than numbers. And it's a humbling lesson, lesson I'm trying to learn. See, Jesus wasn't concerned with the numbers. He was concerned with people's hearts. Jesus focused on the, the few people who would be true disciples. He separated the true disciples from those who really had no faith. And that's why, if you read this in the last verses from John 8, we see the testing of faith of those to whom he spoke. And some failed the test. They were children of the devil. They remained imprisoned by their sin. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's a lot in those words. But before we get to them, listen to the response of the Jews who had supposedly believed. They replied to Jesus said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Their statement was a statement of pride. And it wasn't even true. If you know the history of the Jewish people, they had been enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved by the Assyrians. They were enslaved by the Babylonians. And when Jesus walked this earth, you could say that they were essentially enslaved by the Romans. They had been slaves for much of their existence. You know, there are a lot of people walking around today who believe that they are free. 
They think that they are totally independent. They answer to no one. They are free thinkers. They are proud. It's a lot of bull. They're not free. They're captives of the culture. They are slaves to their passions. They are owned by their narrow-minded thinking. They are imprisoned by their ignorance of the truth. They have unknowingly bought into the lie that they're free and they don't need God. They're captive to their own pride. Jesus' response to the Jewish people fits those with a false sense of freedom today. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Well, that doesn't mean that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It does mean that those who don't trust in God as their father are slaves to sin. See, sin is their identity. Later in John 8, Jesus said to this group, he said, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And the people protested. They said, Abraham is our father. They claimed Abraham as their father, but they were clueless. They had descended from Abraham, but they didn't understand what it meant to be a child of Abraham. They didn't know their Messiah when he was standing right there in front of them. And what followed was a very intense dialogue. The people even stooped to resorting to name-calling. They inferred that Jesus was born of sexual immorality. Of course, they were referring to Jesus being born of Mary. They believed Mary had sex out of wedlock in conceiving Jesus. They didn't accept the truth of the virgin birth. Jesus proclaimed that if God were their father, they would have loved him because Jesus became from God. And then Jesus declared who was their true father, their real daddy. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you read John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59, you'll hear the rest of this exchange. And it ended up with John reporting that the Jews who had supposedly believed in Jesus were picking up stones to throw at Jesus. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And I don't know about you, but that whole passage, that whole confrontation makes me uncomfortable. Really think about it. John said that many of the Jews had believed in Jesus. And then a mere 29 verses later, maybe even a half page later, the same Jews are ready to kill Jesus. Their true allegiance was uncovered. They were interested in Jesus as long as he said and did the right things in their eyes. When Jesus started challenging their pre-existing beliefs, their beliefs that they held dear, they were done with him. And the same is true today. 
If Jesus is all love and grace and forgiveness, people like it. People want to follow him. But how do we respond when Jesus challenges us to change? What happens when Jesus' words make us uncomfortable? What do we do when the way of the world seems like a whole lot more fun than Jesus' way? Well, I have a, re a reading assignment for all of us this week. This week, read Matthew chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 7. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 covers the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus taught about anger, lust, adultery, retaliation, divorce, loving enemies, giving to the needy, where we put our treasure, many, judging others, and faith. And if you know that section of the sermon, you know that Jesus' teachings are not easy. Jesus is going to make every one of us uncomfortable, and he's going to do that because every one of us fails. Every single one of us fails. How we respond, though, is what matters. Do we just throw up our hands and give up? Or do we ignore Jesus? Do we try to rationalize to somehow explain away his words? Or maybe we just outright reject what he's got to say? Or do we do this? Do we come to him on our knees begging for forgiveness? Do we ask Jesus to change us? Do we ask him to give us strength when we face temptation? Do we open our hearts to let Jesus in and receive his forgiveness? God doesn't want us satisfied in sin. He wants us holy in him. See, God doesn't want you and I satisfied with our sins that we have in our life. Instead, he wants us to be holy, to be set apart in him. Being a disciple, a, a true follower of Jesus, isn't easy. Jesus loves every one of us as we are. But he loves us too much to let us stay that way. If we walk in the ways of the world, if we just give in to the culture or whatever's going on, the answer to the question, who's your daddy, is sadly clear. Our daddy's the devil. Because we either belong to Jesus or the devil. There's no middle ground here. You can't claim God as your father if Jesus Christ isn't your savior. And if the daddy is the devil, there's absolutely no freedom. We are slaves to sin. We are under the wrath of God. And unless something changes, eternity will be hell. But, and I said this before, as long as we have breath, there is hope. No one, not one single person is beyond God's reach. We can be adopted by God. We can have a new daddy, a new identity. We can be new creations in Christ. Two verses from our passage speak to our freedom in Christ. 
We come back to one we've read a couple times, verses 31 and 32. It says, if you, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then in verse 36, Jesus said, so then if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Awesome words, powerful words. To be free is to know the truth, and Jesus is the truth. Our freedom includes being released from the bondage from slavery to sin. The Apostle Paul said that we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What awesome words. Richard Phillips is a commentator. He says this, he says, Our freedom from sin is the greatest liberty possible. Sin is not the master of the follower of Christ. Sin doesn't own you. It doesn't own me. We are not its slaves. Yeah, we'll still sin. But it doesn't define who we are. And that means that we're free from condemnation. We're not under God's wrath. Heaven is our home. We have been forgiven. We're set free from fear and worry. God is with us. God will replace that fear with faith. And we might still struggle with depression. We might be stressed. We may be worn out by life, but nothing can steal our joy. Nothing can steal our hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We are free to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We're free to be known by God and loved by God. We're free to fulfill the purpose that that God has for us in life. We're to be light bearers for Christ. We're to be his ambassadors in this world. We are his representatives. We stand for the truth, but we do it in love and mercy. And we're on the winning team. The God of the universe is our daddy. And that is freedom. That is a freedom that never fails. It's a freedom that lasts for eternity. If you've seen the, the, the movie Unbroken that came out a few years back, or the sequel, Unbroken, The Path to Redemption, you might remember the name Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a very angry young man. His temper and his criminal activities trapped him. The first hint of possible freedom came when Louis got involved in athletics. He was good at it. In 1936, he competed in the Olympic Games. He actually finished eighth in the 5,000 meter race. Life had purpose for him. He looked forward to the 1940 Olympics. He dreamed of winning the gold. World War II changed his plans. The, the war took him to the Pacific Theater where Louis was a bombardier on a B-24 Liberator bomber. Louis once survived a mission where his plane, plane was attacked by three Japanese Zeros. One man died. Others were injured when they, the plane actually had 500 bullet and shell fragment holes in the tail and in the fuselage. But somehow, by the grace of God, it landed. In 1943, while on a, a search mission, Louis' plane went down about 850 miles off the island of Oahu. He and two others survived the crash. 
They spent the next seven weeks adrift in a raft. When one of the men died, Louis asked God to rescue him. And he promised to serve God if he, God would only get him through this. Well, Louis was rescued, if you know the story, but he was rescued by the Japanese. The next two years were spent as a prisoner of war where he was tormented by Mutsuhiro Watanabe, who is better known as the bird. The bird beat Louis and starved him. Eventually, Louis was set free by the Allied victory. But sadly, this man was haunted by the pain and the suffering that he had faced. He carried a deep-seated hatred for the Japanese. Once back in the States, he foolishly spent all his money. He drank too much, and he nearly destroyed his marriage. Louis was plagued by nightmares. And he forgot that promise he made to God. Freedom was an illusion. Zamperini was still a prisoner. But God wasn't finished with Louis. In 1949, his wife attended a Billy Graham crusade. She became a Christian. And then she pleaded with Louis to go to her to the, to the crusade one of the next nights. Reluctantly, he agreed to go and he went. And Louis Zamperini became a Christian. He became an evangelist. God was his father and Jesus was his savior. Louis was able to forgive his captors. His nightmare, nightmares ended. He was finally, truly free. Freedom comes only through Christ. Freedom is knowing our heavenly father as your daddy. If the son sets you free... You will be free indeed.